Romans chapter 2, let's read verses 17 through 20. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Four? Okay, let's keep going. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the, of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You may be seated. time shall we brothers and sisters father we uh, just want to commit this text and this time to you this is your word these are your people i pray father that you would open our hearts and our minds that you would shine the light of the gospel forward that lord you would convict us where we need conviction and encourage encourage us where we need encouragement thank you for your people and for your faithfulness in all time and all places in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, Romans chapter 2. Um, thank you, Pastor Stan, for reading that passage. We are um, really just going to take a, a bite size of the larger passage, verses 20, 17 through 20 this morning. And Paul uh, is really developing a case in chapter 2 that the whole world lies guilty before God. Uh, that is to say... The Gentiles, the nations of the world, as well as the Jews, the special people of God, all are in need of salvation because they are sinners. Last week in verses 12 through 16, Paul set out to prove that God's judgment is equitable. It is fair. And he started by saying uh, in, at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth. It's based on a standard, not that man sets, but that God himself sets because he himself is truth. He sets the standard for what is right and for what is wrong. And he will measure everybody by that standard of perfection. He also says that God will judge based on every man's deeds in verse 6 of chapter 2, who will render to each one according to his deeds or his works. And then in verses 12 through 16, which was the focus of last week, we saw that God will give everyone, Jew and Gentile, the rules by which he will judge them in what has been called the light of revelation, the light of revelation. To the Gentiles, he gives general revelation. That is to say, he makes himself known in his creation, in the created order. And that, of course, includes man. Man is part of the created order. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. And he was created in the image of God. And so the knowledge of God has been stamped, if you will, upon the soul of every person on this planet. That is why every people group, even the most remote tribes in the corners of the earth who don't have contact with outsiders, have a sense of morality. It is God given. And in addition to that, God gives conscience to every man. That is the pilot light or the alarm system that God has put inside of all of us to know when we cross the line of what he has stamped on our souls as right and wrong, when we've violated God's law. We, we know because 
Our conscience either accuses or excuses us. It says guilty or not guilty. So even though the nations of the world don't have the written law of God, the great advantage that the Jews had, they do have this, what Paul calls the work of the law written upon their hearts to know enough to condemn them. And to the Jews, of course, they have general revelation, all that the Gentiles have, but they also have special revelation. They have the unique privilege of God's written word to know his will as revealed in scripture. And so again, all will be judged for their sin, whether Gentile or Jew. In verses 17 through 20, our focus this morning, Paul begins to examine the Jew and his privileges in particular. And there are three marks that I would like to leave with you this morning. And I'm calling these the marks of the self-deceived or self-deceived religious person. And they are these. The first is they profess, but they don't possess. They profess, but they don't possess. The second is their motivation is self-exaltation, not God-exaltation. In other words, they're proud, not humble. And the third is this, they have form, but they lack substance. So we're going to go through those together in our text, verses 17 through 20. So first is this, they profess, but they don't possess. Verse 17, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. Called a Jew. Jew comes from Judah. And Judah means praise, praise. When you remember the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, his wives, and Leah, we're told, was unloved. Jacob had special love for Rachel. But God saw Leah in her plight and that she was unloved, and so he gave her sons. In fact, he gave her four sons, and the fourth son was named Judah. And she said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, or his name was called Judah. And then she stopped bearing. So the name Jew, it's important to remember this, means praise. One who praises God and who is praised by God. We're told that salvation was from the Jews. The Jews were a very special people. Jesus, when he spoke with this Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said, you know, excuse me, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. And Judah, in particular, holds a special place in Israel's history. Does he not? Probably the most famous king in all of Israel's history. King David comes from the tribe of Judah. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, comes from Judah. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah, as you recall. Listen to Genesis chapter 49. This is when Jacob is giving his departing words. He's on his deathbed, and he is um, giving his last words to his 12 sons. He says this in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Who is this Shiloh who is coming, who bears a scepter, an instrument that a king bears, and who rules and who has the obedience of the people? It is none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question is, why were the Jews called Jews? Why were they called praise? Well, we know that they were uniquely privileged and associated with blessing. Now, mark these words. They were associated with blessing. They had the written law. They had the covenants. They had the special presence of God among them. They had the service of God. They had a sign called circumcision, which was unique to the Jews. They had a line in their uh, pedigree, their descent directly to Abraham. And, of course, the Messiah, the eternally blessed one, comes through the Jews. 
So they were a preeminently blessed people. But you recall Paul in Romans says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise. You see, it's not ordinary generation of human beings from one person to the next that determines if a person is a, a child of God, but one who is promised and chosen by God himself. And so within the broader nation of Israel, you had the promised seed, the elect, those who were loved by God and praised by God. But there were Jews who were Jews in name only and not Jews indeed. And it is those that Paul is really addressing here in Romans chapter 2. And as we go through this, you may be asking yourself, well, these descriptions seem like they are a good thing. Why are you describing them in a negative sense? And the reason is because if you look at verse 24, Paul is going to conclude this section by saying, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of you. So they were bringing reproach on the name of God, blaspheming the name of God, though they thought that they were praising the name of God as their name would indicate. What is it, brothers and sisters, that identifies a person with a certain nationality? We're talking about the Jews, but think about any nationality or perhaps your own. Uh, it may be the place of your birth a physical location where you were born, or it may be a place where you've registered your citizenship, excuse me, if it's not the country in which you were born. Perhaps uh, you associate with your heritage where your parents or your grandparents hail from. Perhaps it's a religion that identifies you with a certain nationality, who or what you worship. Perhaps it's the way you dress or the food that you eat or the rituals or the customs that you keep. All of these are what I would call external identifiers, external identifiers. But how does God identify a person? Does he look at the external of a person or does he look upon the heart? He looks upon the heart. And his people are those who have his very nature and who act like him. That's very important. The children of God are those who have the nature of God and those who act like him him. You might recall from our reading this morning, Brother Roy was reading Isaiah chapter 48. And the first two verses are so important in this connection. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. They call themselves after the holy city. That's very interesting. There are those who identify themselves with Christianity, with the holy name of God. They use his name. They read his word. They have all the appearance, the form of being a Christian. And yet the Lord doesn't know them because they live lawlessly. As Jesus says in John, in Matthew chapter seven, they are marked by bad fruit. The output of their lives is not holiness. Turn to Matthew chapter 3 with me, if you would, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> this is, of course, uh, the beginning of chapter 3, the account of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord. And... Uh, the beginning of chapter three, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist 
and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John the Baptist was aware that there is in Judaism, and there was an emphasis on externals, on looking the part. There were those who came to be baptized, but he says, where is your fruit showing that you are truly repentant? Where are your good deeds? Where's the good fruit, in other words? He's looking at the output of their lives. And he says, don't say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. Don't count on your pedigree. Don't look to that and take confidence in that. He says, instead, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, your works matter. You need to show fruit of repentance. And if you don't, it doesn't matter what your external Judaism is. It means nothing in the sight of God. And you are in danger of hellfire. The root of the tree is where the axe is laid. That is the judgment of God that is going to cut down everyone whose religion is merely external. In our catechism this morning, we read John chapter 3, the account of Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. And you see that Jesus, he said, most assuredly, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God just as you are. You must be changed. You must be cleansed. You must be reborn, born from above. Your nature must change. So there is a Jew who is one outwardly, and there's a Jew who is one inwardly. So the question I have is this, at this point, is there anything wrong with being called a Jew? He says, you're called a Jew. Well, it depends. The spirit in which this is said is really the key, is it not? Is the person saying in their heart, I'm a Jew. I have been chosen by God. I have great privileges. And he thinks less of other people and despises them. Or does he say that he's humbled in his heart that God would choose him because he's undeserving. He's a sinner. He's a wretch. And he's dedicated to living for his gracious God. See, it was the position of these Jews that Paul was addressing that they had a proud attitude in their hearts. A proud attitude in their hearts. In the Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus, as you might remember, is speaking to the seven churches in the beginning chapters of Revelation. In chapter 2, he speaks to the church of Smyrna. And the account goes like this, Revelation 2, 8, and 9. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write... These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Who's speaking there? That's the Lord Jesus Christ glorified. He's speaking because he knows the hearts of all men. He knows that there are Jews who are just Jews in name only but they are not possessors. So this is the first point. The mark of one who is self-deceived, they profess, but they don't possess. They profess, but they don't possess. The second mark is this. Their motivation is self-exaltation. They're proud. They're lifted up with pride. They're not humble. They glorify self and not God. And keep that in mind as we go through these statements that follow. There are a number of them. The first is this. And rest on the law. 
and rest on the law. Indeed, you were called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. The idea of resting. Resting, the Greek word means to lean on. It means to put your weight on something. To put confidence in, in other words. So, is that a bad thing? Well, again, the spirit matters. Are we to trust in God's word and have our confidence in God's word? Amen, brothers and sisters, right? Psalm 119.35, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. I delight in it. See, the heart can say that it delights in God's law. It trusts in God's word. It believes God. That is exactly how Abraham was saved. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And by the way, that is exactly how all of us, each one of us is saved by believing God and who God says his salvation is as he's revealed it in his son, Jesus Christ. Or a person can say in their heart, I have the law and others don't. And I'm better than you. You see, it's, it's a different attitude. It's an attitude of the heart. The Jews had a superficial understanding of the law. They were following what we would call the letter only. Not the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law. The actual words, what they said. They served, as Paul says, in the oldness of the letter in Romans chapter 7. Not in the newness of the spirit. They didn't understand the spirit behind the law at all. They were blind to it. And they believed that as long as they didn't break the letter, they were okay. As long as they didn't physically commit adultery, as long as they didn't physically murder anybody, or steal something from someone else, they were fine. And if they did break the law, they would bring a sacrifice, an offering. Okay, God, here's your lamb. Here's your goat. Here's your dove, whatever it might be. The slate is now cleared. And, and so they went on like this, thinking that they could keep the law in this way and attain righteousness not realizing that they were really storing up, treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath, as Paul says earlier in chapter 2, and that that wrath would eventually condemn them. They were blind to that. But we get some unique insights in Scripture that these Jews and the Pharisees who really typify this attitude of an evil heart, of unbelief, and of self-righteousness, we get some interesting insights that they were not at peace, though they did all this, though they had their system for trying to keep the law and they would assure themselves they didn't have peace. Think of, for example, the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And of course, Jesus turns the conversation on its head and he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. And he says, but if you want to enter life and keep the commandments. So he points them to the law and he lists several. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your mother, your mother and your father, love your neighbor as yourself. And what do the rich young rulers say in response? All these things have I kept from my youth up. And Jesus said, but one thing you lack Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And then the next statement is the saddest statement in the whole account. It says that the man went away sorrowful for he was a man who had many possessions. You see, Jesus hit him exactly where his confidence was. It was in his belongings, in his earthly treasures. And Jesus chopped that out from under him. And he said, I, I can't. I can't follow you. I love my stuff more than I love you. Think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was actually a ruler of the Jews. He was in a privileged position, a small elite group. He was a teacher of the law. So he knew the law extremely well, if ever there was one, just like Paul. He knew the, the law very well. And yet we're told in the account of John 3 that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, there's some speculation about why that is exactly. But I think if you read the account, 
to me, it's pretty clear that he comes by night because he's got some questions that are burning questions, very important questions. And he wants a one-on-one -on -one audience with Jesus because he needs an answer to his question. And so he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do except God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, did Nicodemus ask a question? There's no question in the account. However, at the end of chapter two, right before this account, in the beginning of chapter three, we're told that there was a group who saw the miracles of Jesus. And Nicodemus was surely in that group. He saw with his physical eyes the miracles that Jesus had performed. And so he knew that he was a man come from God. He was powerful. And Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see with spiritual eyes. That's Nicodemus's problem. He can't truly see. He's seen the signs with his physical eyes, but spiritually he's dead and he's blind. And so Jesus cuts him off at the pass and he says, you cannot enter the kingdom the way you are. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is floored. He says, how can this be? How can a man go back into his mother's womb when he's old and be born again? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. So Jesus is talking about the flesh and the spirit. He's speaking spiritual truth. And only those who have ears to hear, excuse me, can hear. In this encounter, Nicodemus did not have ears to hear. Later, I believe he does come to know the Lord. But these people knew the law. They, they rested on it. And yet they had no assurance of salvation. They, they only used the law to judge others and to create a system that they believed that they could keep for their own righteousness. And they were proud of it. They boasted in it. And you know the irony, brothers and sisters, the very law that they trusted in, that they rested on, was that which condemned them. Jesus said as much in John 5, 45. He said to the Jews who sought to kill him, don't think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Moses represents the law. You trust in the law, and the law condemns you. Look at this next phrase in Romans 2, 17. Indeed, you're called a Jew. Rest on the law and make your boast in God. Boast, to glory in, to rejoice in. Does that sound like a bad thing? Again, it depends on the spirit. The spirit of boasting matters. The, scriptures teaches, teaches, the scripture teaches that we are to glory and rejoice in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.31, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It's a good thing to glory in the Lord. Paul says in Galatians, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Jews were to praise God. They were to boast in him. They were to glory in him. But what were these Jews doing whom Paul is addressing? They were boasting in God like this. We have the law. We have circumcision, we have Abraham, and you don't. The spirit matters. See, they boasted in their knowledge, in their privileges, not in God himself, not in God's loving kindness, in his judgment, in his righteousness. The focus was all wrong because it was coming from a hard and impenitent heart, an unrepentant heart. Matthew Henry comments, on this subject, he says, a proud, vain, glorious boasting in God and in the outward profession of his name is the root and summary of all hypocrisy. Spiritual pride is of all kinds of pride the most dangerous. It's the wrong kind of boast. Verse 18, and know his will. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. The Jews knew the will of God. And it's a wonderful thing to know God's will as revealed in Scripture. That's a great privilege. But again, the spirit matters. If you know his will, the question is, do you desire that his will be done? And do you actually do his will? Or do you just talk about it? 
See, saying that you believe all the right things won't save you if your heart is still hard. James even says that the demons believe. They're orthodox. They believe and they tremble, but they're not saved, are they? See, the devil knows scripture better than anyone, but he's also a master at twisting it to mean what he wants it to mean for his purposes. Um, think of the encounter with Jesus and the devil and the temptation in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. I would encourage you to look at that, to study that. How the devil takes God's word and he twists it to something that it doesn't mean. And Jesus parries each one of those blows that the devil sends his way with scripture interpreted correctly. We may know God's will and even do many works in the name of the Lord. But if we don't do his will, if we don't do his will, then we're not known by Jesus. We don't belong to him. We're those who Jesus will say, to whom Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. They've never been rebirthed by God. Their nature has never changed. They've just adopted, taken on this shell of religion, whether it's Judaism or Christianity, doesn't matter. And Jesus says, the one who hears his words but doesn't do his words is like a man who built his house on a foundation of what? Sand, right? crumbles and it's going to crumble in the in the final day of judgment <clears throat> and know his will and approve the things that are excellent some translations say more excellent uh, this word for approve dokimazo is is one who tests the purity of metals he he <clears throat> um, really tested coins in biblical times to see if they were um, alloyed with other impurities or whether they were pure, silver or gold. And so this idea is one who tests, one who takes everything and evaluates it by the word of God. He's able to distinguish not only good from evil, but he's able to discern the good from the better and the better from the best. He has this ability to rank and order things in priority. It's a good thing. But again, the spirit matters in how you approve the things that are excellent. You see, if you approve the things that are excellent, do you also despise those things that are evil? If you approve of excellence, but inwardly you love evil, is your approval nothing more than hypocrisy? It means nothing to God. It's an affront to God. These Jews enjoyed putting themselves in the seat of the judge. They used God's law to condemn others, but they wouldn't look at themselves with a critical eye. And how did they approve of these things that are excellent or more excellent? What was, what was their guide? Well, he says being instructed out of the law. He was instructed. That word is the word from which we get the English word catechized. It is in Greek, katecheo. You get the idea, catechized, to be taught the word of God. We do that every week here. Um, we try to at least, where we put a question and answer on the overhead and in the bulletin, because the idea is we're training everyone, all of us, in righteousness to know the word of God and the precepts of God, line upon line, precept upon precept. Parents, fathers, I would encourage you, this is a good thing to do at home with your children. Catechize them, teach them the word of God in question and answer format. It's a great way of retaining knowledge but it will not save in and of itself. It's not a security for the soul if you are the most catechized person in the world. You know every catechism by heart if you live like the devil. Scripture teaches that blessing and joy is always tied to what? Obedience. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and Obey. If you know these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. And then look at verse 19. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. A guide to the blind. Confident. Pitho in Greek. Confident means to be persuaded of something. Trusting in something. And where is their confidence? In themselves, right? In their own abilities. 
to guide the blind and function as a light and teach others. But where should our confidence and trust be? What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. The love of Christ in which we stand. That's it. Our confidence is 100% in Christ. It's not in ourselves. So the lesson, the critical lesson here is that the object of your faith matters. You can have genuine conviction and that is totally meaningless in the eyes of God if your faith is ultimately in yourself, not in the Lord. By the way, something interesting, I love word studies, as you probably know by now. That word pitho for persuaded is used by John in the negative form in John 3.36. John 3.36, this is a very familiar verse, but listen to it with this lens. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Does not believe the son. That word is apitheo. It's a, which is the negative construction of whatever the word is. Pitheo. So it sounds like apathetic, doesn't it? That's exactly where we get the English word. It means to be unpersuaded, not persuaded of something. And somebody who's not persuaded is unbelieving and they're disobedient. That's why we get those translations that we do. So here's the question. What's the reason any person would be apitheo about the Lord Jesus Christ? Apathetic toward him, unpersuaded, unbelieving, disobedient. Is it not because their confidence is in themselves rather than in him? That was the case of these Jews that Paul is addressing. They were confident in their abilities. Think about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. That whole section begins like this. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You see that attitude again and again. And what was the behavior of those who trust in themselves from this account of the tax collector and the Pharisee? Well, the Pharisee's eyes were totally on himself. Right. He says, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. His eyes were totally on himself and he measured himself on the horizontal plane by other people and not by the standard, which is God's perfection, his perfection, his righteousness. But the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner or the sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, referring to the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So you see this trend continue of self-exaltation rather than God's exaltation. Paul says in verse 18, you approve. I'm sorry, in verse 19, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a guide. Guide is the word for one who leads others down a road. It's a good thing. Well, assuming that the person can see, right, that they're not going to lead you into a ditch. But what if the person can see physically with their eyes, but spiritually they're blind? Like take Judas, for example. Judas, who was guide to those who arrested Jesus. He could see physically, but spiritually he was blind and he was corrupt. He was one of the 12. And if ever there was a person who should have been saved because he was in and around associated with the Lord Jesus Christ and his whole ministry of salvation, it would have been Judas. But it's not association only that matters. It's an inward change that matters. Death to life. Judas's motive? Greed. He sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver to those who wanted to destroy Jesus. And the true motive of his heart was exposed, right? He is the son of perdition. And so he fulfilled scripture. 
but he was motivated by greed. The Pharisees thought that they were guides of the blind, those who could lead others down the road of righteousness and teach them, instruct them. But Jesus says, you're blind guides. He flips it around on them. You think that you are guides who can guide blind people. You actually are blind guides yourself. And here's what he said in Matthew 23, which is a chapter of much indictment on these Pharisees, the woes chapter. He says, Jesus, he says, this is what Jesus said. They who are the Pharisees, the blind, they travel land and sea to win one proselyte. In other words, they spare no effort to convert a Gentile to Judaism. They'll do anything that's required to make that conversion. And not to true Judaism either, but to an apostate version of Judaism that they had corrupted, where they believed that they could earn righteousness by their own efforts at law-keeping. Jesus said, and when he is one, that proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus did not mince any words, did he? I mean, you are sons of hell, he's saying. You, your father is the devil. Where you belong, your citizenship is in hell. And your converts, they're twice a son of hell as you are. Why? Because you have not only shut up the narrow gate that leads to the road of salvation, but you've opened the broad gate that leads to destruction, works righteousness. These Pharisees were blind. These Jews were blind. And Jesus said, leave them alone. The blind lead the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Ultimately, they're going to fall into the ditch, which is hell itself. Gilbert Tennant, who was um, an itinerant preacher during the Great Awakening in the United States in the 18th century, he um, used to travel with George Whitfield and the Wesleys. And in 1740, he preached a sermon that was titled The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, and it rattled a lot of cages. Because at that time in colonial America, um, the attitude of the religious was, and these were Orthodox people who go to church, was that if you had the right orthodoxy, you believed the right things, you could say the right things, and you were a respectable, quote unquote, respectable, moral, upstanding person, then you were saved. And then these revival preachers came through and they emphasized the need of the rebirth, the need to be born again. And people were very upset by that because it made them uncomfortable. Well, what, they, what were they doing? They were exposing darkness with light, with truth. And so he preached this sermon, the danger of an unconverted ministry, referring to a minister of the gospel who stands in a pulpit and preaches and yet is unconverted. Listen to what he says. That none, excuse me, that none can expect God's blessing upon their ministry that are not called and sent of God into the ministry. And right reason will inform us how unfit instruments they are to negotiate that work that they pretend to. Is a blind man fit to be a guide in a very dangerous place? Is a dead man fit to bring others to life? A madman fit to give counsel in a matter of life and death? Is a possessed man fit to cast out devils? A rebel, an enemy to God, fit to be sent on an embassy of peace to bring rebels into a state of friendship with God? A captive bound in the massy chains of darkness and guilt, a proper person to set others at liberty? A leper or one that has, a, has plague sores upon him, fit to be a good physician? Is an ignorant rustic, which I think was a term for a sailor, that has never been at sea in his life, fit to be a pilot, to keep vessels from being dashed to pieces upon rocks and sandbanks? Isn't an unconverted minister like a man who would teach others to swim before he has learned himself, and so is drowned in the act and dies like a fool? His point is that those who are not equipped to do a job can't help others to do that job, right? Unconverted men who are in darkness themselves cannot be a guide to those who are in darkness and need light. And that applies whether you're a Pharisee, whether you're an unconverted minister, a preacher standing in a pulpit like this, or whether you're just an unconverted person and you're 
pretending to be a Christian and sharing the word of God with others. They were to be a light to those in darkness. God intended Israel to be a light to the nations around them. Light in scripture has two senses. One is truth and the other is moral purity or holiness. So in terms of truth, God wanted his people to teach his law to others. Remember last week when we read the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what follows? That he wanted them to teach all his commands to their children diligently all the time. When they're rising up in the morning, when they're going to bed at night, and all throughout the day. In Psalm 78, Asaph gives the exact same sense when he says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. God wants us to tell forth his truth. We are to be light in that sense. And moral purity, holiness. See, what was the reason God had separated Israel in all the ways he had? Ceremonially, civilly, their lives were to be different from the nations surrounding them because he wanted them to be a light to show what God is like to the nations who are godless and pagan. That's why he says, be holy for I am holy. You will be holy because you are my people. You are representing me. Functioning as light is a very good thing. Except if the motive is wrong again. Matthew Henry, they, referring to the Jews in general, thought themselves guides to the poor blind Gentiles that sat in darkness, were very proud of this, that whoever would have the knowledge of God must be beholden to them for it. All other nations must come to school to them to learn what is good and what the Lord requires, for they had the lively oracles. See, the Jews had tremendous privilege, tremendous advantage over the Gentiles. Paul's going to say as much in chapter 3 of Romans. But here's the key. They missed. They missed the reason God privileged them. He did not privilege them for their own sake. With great responsibility, there is always obligation. And what was that obligation to? It wasn't for themselves, but it was to shine forth the glory of God to all the nations around and within their own nation. To image God in all the earth, to make him look good, to praise him, Judah. Not to put themselves on display to receive the praise of men, which is exactly what these people were doing. Rather than showing the justice and mercy of God to those around them, imaging God's attributes, they oppressed the weak. And Paul's going to develop that idea as we go through verses 21 through 23 next time, 24 next time, Lord willing. But again, this attitude of we are better than everyone else, just a wrong attitude because it comes from a hard heart. And then lastly, in verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Instructor, a trainer, a discipliner, one who corrects as, as a father would correct his children. That's what's meant by instructor. Instructor of the foolish, those who are without reason, those who are unwise. And they were teachers, the daskalos. This is the word that they use for master, for rabbi. And teacher of babes. Babes, it's kind of a funny word in today's culture, but babes meaning um, those who are Unlearned, unskilled. It was really referring to the proselytes that the Jews would win to Judaism. So they're instructors of the foolish. They're teachers of babes. Noble things to instruct other people with the truth. But again, we have to ask, what was their motivation? Jesus tells us they loved to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. They loved greetings in the marketplaces. They loved the best Places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue were told um, this kind of interesting term. They brought in their phylacteries. What were phylacteries? Phylacteries were these leather boxes 
that contained scripture. And they would hang them um, from their arm above their left elbow. They would hang them from their forehead. And so when they broadened, Jesus says they broadened their phylacteries. They made them more prominent, more visible. They wanted to show how holy and good they were. Same thing with the tassels. They lengthened their tassels. He's not condemning tassels in and of themselves. But they lengthened them. They were trying to show forth their holiness in a superficial way. It's a false pretense, a self-deception. They were seeking the praise of men and wanting glory and honor for themselves. They were taught out of the law. They were catechized, but incorrectly. They followed the letter and not the spirit. They pass on this ignorance to others repeatedly, generation by generation. The question is this, brothers and sisters, who is the real teacher, instructor of babes and the foolish? Is it not the Lord himself? Jesus prayed and thanked his father in Matthew 11 for hiding spiritual truth from the wise and prudent and for revealing it instead to babes. Same term. So who's the real teacher? It's God. God, the Holy Spirit, and not a man. 2 Timothy 3.16, we quote that often. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching. Whoever said that? Wonderful. Teaching. For reproof, that means convincing, for correction, straightening that which is crooked, for training in righteousness, that refers to training up children, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So again, the teacher is the spirit of God who breathes out the word of God, and he's the one who instructs us line upon line and convinces us that what he says is true. Now, there's nothing wrong with gifted men who teach the word of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, God gave the office of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers to do that, to equip the church and build them up in the knowledge of God. But here's the key. Do we give ourselves praise? Do we want people to come to us and call us rabbi and teacher and exult in that honor and glory for ourselves? God forbid. Those who are gifted that way are vessels, sinful, weak, broken vessels that God in his grace uses. He condescends to use for his own glory. Why? So that he would receive all the praise and the honor. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. May he be praised. The credit must go to the Lord. And they did not want to give credit to anyone but themselves. So self-exaltation versus God-exaltation. And then here's the last point. It's a short one because it's the end of verse 20. They have form. They have form, but no substance. Form, the word is morphosis. Morphosis. It sounds a lot like morph, right? Or morphology, which is the study of form. The form of things, how they appear, the shape that they have. So back to Isaiah 48 again, our corporate reading. Listen to it now in this with this lens. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. They have a form, a shell, if you will, of religion, but inside it's empty. Paul applies the very same idea um, when he talks to, when he sends a letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he's addressing false teachers there, but he says the same thing. He says about these people, these false teachers, they have a form of godliness, same word, form, but they deny its power. And from such people, turn away. They appear to be righteous, holy. They claim to be Christians. They teach the Bible. So what's the problem? They deny the power of true godliness. Where are they giving credit? Does it come from the Lord only? Or are they lovers of self and want people to praise them and see their power and their godliness? I think you get the idea. There are those who are Christians or Jews in name only. They're always learning, but they never are able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because they remain in darkness and they've never been born again. 
the veil remains over their hearts and minds. They profess, but they don't possess. Their motivation is self-exaltation and not God-exaltation. And they have form, but not substance. I just want to close with this. In Scripture, the name of a person matters. Names are given for a few different reasons. One might be denoting where they come from, their origin. Like take Adam, for example. Adam comes from the Hebrew word ground because he was taken from where? From the ground, from the dust of the earth. It can also denote purpose, purpose. Jesus, for example, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means savior. The Lord is salvation. So his name is tied to his purpose. And it can refer to characteristics or circumstances like Isaac, for example. What happened with Isaac? Well, Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. And when God told them, we're going to give you a son, promised son, they laughed. And so Isaac means laughter. True Jews, brothers and sisters, true Christians are called praise because their origin is from God, born again from above. Their purpose is to praise God, not just with their lips, but with their lives, from the heart. And their character is praiseworthy by God, praiseworthy by God. Do you desire this morning to praise the Lord in all of your being? If so, praise him because that's God-given. That's not something that the old nature does. The old nature praises self. Anyone else who claims the name of a Christian, a child of God, but who doesn't show by their lives the fruit of the Spirit, good fruit, evidence is that they have not been born again. It's pretty clear. We go back to the Lord will render to each one according to his what? His works, his deeds. We're not talking about how a man is justified. That's by grace, through faith alone in Christ. Paul's going to be very clear on that. But he is talking about judgment. And he says, God will render to each according to his deeds, the output of your life. Those who are born again have the spirit of the living God inside of them. And they are those alone who are able to work the good works of God, which are the only good works. Anything that comes from the flesh is evil, is worthless, is um, a, um, <laughs> detestable in the sight of God. These Jews, they seem to do the right things, but they're driven by a heart that's hard and unrepentant. They have a superficial understanding of God's word. They follow the letter, but not the spirit. They trust in themselves and in their own abilities. They won't glorify God and acknowledge their total dependence on him in all things. They say all the right things with their lips, but their hearts are really far from God. They're orthodox and they speak the truth, but their lives produce nothing but bad fruit. And if they don't repent, their self-deception will be realized in, a, in an eternity of eternal damnation. In the pit the fire that is never quenched, the lake of fire, where people are tormented consciously for an eternity. Brothers and sisters, it should be our strongest desire that we never want a person to go there, that they should have to trip over our bodies as we warn them and tell them that they need to repent and turn to Christ and live, that they don't need to die. The dangers of self-deception. Paul is now going to build this next section. And Lord willing, next week we're going to look at this, verses 21 through 24, where he said, okay, you Jews are self-exalting. And he's going to put some questions to them so that they self-examine. And brothers and sisters, that is what we need to do with ourselves and with the world, is bring the word to bear on people's lives. 
The law has a wonderful function. It shows the holiness of God and it shows the sinfulness of man. But again, these Jews and people like Nicodemus and the rich young ruler and Paul before he was converted, they have a knowledge of the law, but it's a superficial knowledge. They don't really understand. They don't have the right awareness of truly how holy God is and how sinful they are. That can only be provided by the Spirit of God. But we still must bring the Word of God before them and pray, God, open their eyes that they may see how dependent they are upon you and call out for you to save them. And the Lord graciously will because he is a Savior by nature. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for, uh, Lord, um, sobering instruction. Father, we naturally want to hear things that are easy and smooth and that sound good. But, Father, we know that your purpose, <clears throat> your purpose is to transform us from these bodies of sin and flesh to a glorified body. You are making us more like your son all the time as we have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. You are doing the work only you can do, transforming us from within. And that's a painful work. Father, may we hear your word and rejoice in all of it, the hard sayings and the encouragements. And Lord, may we be mindful of those around us who need your gospel. Give us courage to speak your word with boldness. And may you receive all the honor and the glory for you are worthy. May we be called sons of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.